Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021 episode of the Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is Jonathan Paul Gertler. Like the unyielding current that propels the mightiest of rivers, the muse flows quite strongly through the music of multifaceted singer-songwriter-guitarist Jonathan Paul Gertler. The artist's skill set runs deep within the sonic banks of the ten tracks that populate his bold new album, No Fear which was released on all major digital platforms on September 10th, 2021. Co-produced by Gertler with his trusted collaborator, John Chase at Chase Studios in Methuen, Massachusetts, No Fear further benefits from the intuitive collaborative nature of regular Gertler cohorts, Sal DeFusco and John Paul on guitars, Joe Santeri on bass and John Chase on percussion. Not to mention the occasional poignant cello accents from Catherine Bent and Bobby Chase. Background vocals by John and Corinne Chase and piano courtesy of Doug Johnson. If anything, the lyrical content in Evidence on No Fear reflects the culture of positivity Gertler has nurtured as a blossoming songwriter over the course of his previous two albums, 2013's After the Storm and 2016's Heart and Mind. Everything I've ever been involved with has to reflect that, he believes. There are certain subjects that are very powerful and make me incredibly happy. Things like love and reflection and nature all hopefully find their way into my lyrics. But you also have to take into account all the pitfalls the world can bring you. The fire of creativity stirred inside Gertler at an early age. 
Right from the very first time I picked up a guitar, I started writing songs, he reports. I started writing seriously when I was about 14 or 15, and it never occurred to me not to be engaged fully in my chosen subject matter. Does Gertler consider the art of songwriting to be a calling of sorts? I wouldn't call it that because it sounds a little bit more priest-like or musically self-important than I am, he replies. But it is a necessary means of self-expression. When I'm really distracted or stressed, I don't write well. But when I'm feeling really centered and energized, I want that feeling to come more to the surface. That's when I write the best. Gertler feels the many years he spent as a vascular surgeon clearly fueled his outlook as a songwriter. Being a surgeon was a central event in my life, he agrees. It informs you person your personality, and I spent a lot of years at it. It exposes you to life, death, and other things most people never get to see. Some of my songs are very reflective of that part of my personality, but I also try to account for the willingness to take risks in life to get to a better place without putting people in harm's way. Gertler realizes there are larger forces at work within the purview of his own output. My orientation is always that I'm committed to doing something for the greater good, he asserts. I've done really interesting things that have always been very people-oriented, and I've had the luck, pleasure, and luxury of being able to produce and write music through those years with the same orientation of being tuned into people's emotions and being tuned into the outcome and the vagaries of life. That's ultimately what my music is all about. It is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Jonathan Paul Gertler. Hello, Jonathan. It's great to talk with you. Great to meet you and to talk to you, Craig. Thanks for having me here. You bet. Let's get right to your new album, No Fear, which was released uh, in September. Yep. The album is a collection of 10 songs. And, you know, the ancient Greeks and Romans used to say that the purpose of tragedy and their drama was to serve as an emotional cleansing or a catharsis for those witnessing the drama. You could get rid of the pain without actually experiencing the pain, put it another way. So I, my question for you, are the songs you write done with the idea of provi providing an emotional catharsis for yourself as reflections of personal experiences, or are they songs constructed to elicit a catharsis for others? So, it, you know, it's, it's interesting, and it also reflects to me what I think it's underemphasized in many aspects of our society, which is the evolution of an individual. You know, you could be something very different at 20 than you are at 40 or at 60. And there is absolutely no question. There's one song that I still play and I still love, maybe there are a couple that I wrote when I was college age or, you know, right afterwards. There are a few of those that still stick around that actually on my first album, I included those several songs. There's zero question that when I wrote some of them, they were the heartbroken lament of a young man. They were catharsis, <laughs> you know, with you know, no hands down. 
Um, and it was because in those years, songwriting to me was very much about getting those emotions out, you know, somehow getting it off my plate. You know, there have been a lot of years since then. And I think one of the great privileges of getting older is that you start to observe the world around you. You start to close your own experiences on that world. And there's also no question that the songs I write now are very observational. They're not experiential. They're built on the whole sense of what I see in the world and in people, and I can use love as a metaphor or what have you, but they're not designed to create an emotional release because I, to me, that's a less, um, it, it, it's, it's a, younger, a younger intent. So, you know, my, my greatest thrill um, would be to have something that I write, which is an observation around something that might trouble me or might inspire me. Um, have an emotional response to it because if you take that out of it, it's pretty boring if you're not sharing it with your listeners. And to have the listeners then react to it and relate to it in a context that fits their lives. But I, I have to say at this point in life versus when I was 20, um, I'm not trying to elicit an emotional release. I'm actually trying to create an observation that speaks to people and that of course speaks to me as well. Well, then that's it rather interesting. So then, uh, you know, as a as a music scholar, I would say that you shifted from being a romanticist, in other words, uh, expressing uh, yourself vis-a-vis uh, -vis your own personal feelings to more of a classicist where you are expressing a more uh, general uh, or objective uh, sort of sort of. Uh, uh, way of looking at the world uh you know as, at least that's what it sounds to me like the way you're describing it so i you know um first of all it's wonderful to speak to a musicologist and have the opportunity that to have categorizations that i might not necessarily think of um and and understand where this fits the, the romantic in me has has never gone away whatsoever i think you know okay. i'm i'm an and nor has the naturalist you know i um I am enamored of a lot of poetry through the years. I'm very enamored of things that invoke the natural world because I think it provides metaphors and experiences that are really you know, fundamental to the human experience. And there's no question that I still retain an extremely romantic view of the world. And I don't mean romantic in the um, what romance novel sense, but I mean romantic in the sense of you know striving for a greater good, of trying to see the optimism, see the shimmer in things. And that ranges from people to, as I said, to the natural world. And yet at the same time, I'm very um, reluctant just to have the emotional outburst be the basis of the song. I think there's a craft to songwriting that I really enjoy. There's the, there's a surprise in the chord progression without getting too complex. There's the nice turn of phrase, there's the quote of somebody else's turn of phrase. And, you know, and, and that reference becomes a grounding for a songwriter. So those are all things that I think about, but there's no question that as I've matured, which is a euphemism for age. <laughs> sure. That, um, that as, I've, as I've matured, it's been way less about the, oh my goodness, this happened to me. I need to express what happened. And much more about the fact that, you know, the world is doing something. and. Let's observe it and let's learn from it together. And I think the unexamined life is not worth living, to quote the cliche. Mm -hmm. um, but hopefully that gets reflected in any of the musical output or artistic output that any of us involved in this type of thing will do. You know, I, I've just had this incredible 
burst of uh, a light bulb just went on. And, and what I would like to run by you and maybe also bring to light for my listeners is a similar type of perspective that we saw in uh, music comparing at the beginning of the 60s versus at the beginning of the 1970s. You know, we had Bob Dylan singing about the times they are a changing. In other words, making an observation about the world and expressing what he was seeing in the world. Then we fast forward 10, 11 years, I don't remember exactly, to like James Taylor, who then is singing, I've seen fire and I've seen rain. In other words, kind of going from a personal experiential uh, perspective in his songs. And it kind of sounds to me like, you know, there's that similar sort of chemistry going on in your own thinking, in your own writing, when you say that, you know, okay, I want to put out something that is going to be, you know, broadly consumed by the, by the listener, but I still haven't lost my romanticism, my love for whatever we, you know, uh, in the arts, I know, when we talk about romantic, we're not talking about necessarily romantic love, because there's a, a lot of different kind of romantic feelings that that, that, that one has. Uh, so in either case, then, uh, if you uh, don't necessarily see your music as a catharsis or a cleansing for yourself, have you had listeners respond to you about your music as as perhaps doing so for them? You know, and, and that's one of the greatest moments of the last couple of years is that as especially this one, this latest album has come out. And, and I also am happy to talk a little bit about stuff that I'm writing at the moment in preparation, I hope for the next one. And I chuckle, as you mentioned, Bob Dylan and James Taylor, because if you ask me my, you know, my constellation of Greek heroes, as long as we're going back to ancient Greece, the, those, those two are way up there. I mean, I thought, you know, Dylan, um, Dylan took folk music Head. Um, and it was just, you know, so extraordinary to hear both, you know, the lyrical bravery that he came up with and, and his ability to, to poke holes. I um, mean, yet at the same time, he wrote incredibly personal songs. And, you know, I, one of the first tunes I learned on guitar, because it was three or four chords, was, you know, in a me babe, you know, mm-hmm. um, and which was an incredibly personal song. James Taylor influenced everyone in all time. I mean, you know, the, the, the stellar, beautiful voice, obviously. And um, I think we're going to talk about The Water is Wide a little bit later in this mm-hmm. conversation. Um, and I have a funny anecdote about that as well. But, you know, incredible voice, unbelievably, unbelievable expression, an amazing instrument, and truly personalized, including stuff that was really deeply personal and revealing. I mean, the, the things that went on with him as an adolescent, the things that he revisited, they both have a place. I think... You know, I had a vocal coach, I have a vocal coach who said to me, and because I'm not a great vocalist, he said, no one cares whether you hit a bad note, but they care deeply if you're holding back. So I, mm-hmm. I think you have to somehow marry the ability to show yourself, the ability to, to share your deeper thoughts, doesn't have to necessarily need to be a biographical moment, um, but you need to refract the world if you're writing through your response, because if you're not showing them those emotions, they're not gonna give a hoot or you're writing bubblegum. And I think that cuts across the board, but to to cut to the chase on your question, um, 
without invoking anything too specific, because I don't want to be revealing violated trust. I have a, a longstanding acquaintance that I've worked with in my, you know, in my business life for many, many years who had a really great loss. And this has happened in a couple of settings. Um, and one of the songs, Time and Place, um, in, on this album is inspired by a loss that I had. I, mean, I lost my sister at a very, um, at, at a premature age for her, um, not, not that long ago. Um, but the song itself wasn't, wasn't about that. It was about this issue of continual feelings, even in the setting of challenge and burden and separation. But, you know, that was a central inspiration to it. And one acquaintance um, listened to that song and called me with just the extraordinary amount of touch points that the lyrics had on her as an individual. And that was one of the most amazingly gratifying things, not because I wrote it to address a specific loss, but because it gave comfort and inspiration to somebody who was still trying to figure out a way to move forward and articulate how that loss was going to impact, you know, the future for her and for her family, et cetera. So, you know, I've had a couple of events like that. I mean, there's nothing more Mormon. And, you know, and as I've said in the interviews, and as I think you know, I was a I was a practicing physician and surgeon for a very, very long time. And, you know, you, you develop the habits of being a caregiver. And I gave up the practice of medicine about 20 years ago for some other very interesting things to do in life. But I've still never deviated from, you know, and that is a call. That's a sense of really giving to people. My wife is also a physician. She's no longer practicing. But the two of us have really meaningful interactions with neighbors, with friends, where, you know, helping them to negotiate illness or the fear of that is really meaningful. So when you can touch people in that way, it is extraordinary. Um, mm -hmm. I don't set out to do that in my songwriting, just to be clear. <laughs> you know, I'm chuckling only because, um, well, for two reasons. Now, number one, you're the first medical doctor that I've had as a guest. However, I have had two blues singers that are nurses yeah. and, uh, and we, we, and the, the two uh, nurses that I talked with about music uh, talked very strongly about how powerful they felt music was in the healing process. Sure. And, uh, and one, actually uh, the podcast with her interview went live uh, yesterday. Her name is Patty Parks and she's uh, out of Buffalo, New York. And she even started a program called Nursing Blues and uh, won uh, some, some uh, civic rec recognition for that and so on. But I will also tell you, Jonathan, that most every singer, songwriter, or composer that I have talked to has told me about the great gratification they receive when they know that someone who has listened to their music has gotten something out of it whether it is comfort, healing, uh, an emotional release, uh, you know, a shared experience, whatever, that, uh, you know, that these common human emotions that we have, we can find a way to vent or uh, express or feel together with, with, a, with a, someone else. So I, I think that's wonderful that you've, you've got that, uh, that happening and that uh, you recognize that healing power and it doesn't go away. I mean, it's like, I'm an educator, right? And every time I meet a younger person, and when I say, you know, anybody under 30, 
I always warn them. I say, now be real careful because even though I'm semi-retired from teaching, I will try to motivate you and help guide you towards achieving your dream. <laughs> so, so you better watch out. And, and I have, I just have that natural tendency to, to take people under my wing and, and try to do that. So I, I, I understand where you're coming from. You, you can, you know, take yourself out of being a caregiver, but you can never take the caregiver out of yourself. Right. Or the mentor. Or the I think these are the things, um, and this is, you know, I guess it's off topic. I, I don't know whether you have kids. I've raised three, you know, wonderful, but now adult sons. And the only thing you can tell, I think, your children that really makes them successful, if you tell them to go after this job because it pays X, Y, or Z, then they may make X, Y, or Z, but they're not necessarily going to be happy adults. If you tell them to pursue things that they're really passionate about, that speak to who they are, that speak to the things that they want to express and bring to the world and contribute and give back, um, the success follows that. I mean, if you want me to really go off on a tangent... I would say one of the things that we're losing at the moment in our society, and I do think we can get it back, is the sense of contributing as opposed to taking. Um, and, if we, and if we can make that the central piece, then if you're lucky, you can contribute by writing beautiful songs or by educating people or by providing care or providing a service. It doesn't matter. But, but those are the things that mean the world to me. And if some of that gets expressed in songwriting, because that's just a, something I just have always loved to do, then, then it's successful. And you know, mm -hmm. that's what that's what you No, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. We need to heed John F. Kennedy's words. Don't ask what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And I would say, maybe we change that to don't ask what your countrymen can do for you, but ask what can you do for your countrymen. And maybe even expand that to the, the whole world. I agree wholeheartedly with you. I think that's excellent. Um, on your new album, uh, No Fear, you work with a wonderful co-producer and, and various collaborators. How much did your songs change from your original conception when you first completed writing them as compared to the end product that went on the album? I think if you look up dinosaur in Wikipedia, you'll see a picture of a brontosaurus and a picture of me. You know, and the... <laughs> Oh, um, so the, the short answer to your question, and I'm going to really answer it more fully, is conceptually not all that much, but there were some things that were pretty challenging for some of the songs, and that's been true for the three albums. Um, you know, I was I grew up in guitar duos, two guitars, two voices. Um, I don't remember if you know if you remember a, a band called a, a Two Guys, Aztec Two Step, from years and years ago. They were folk, folk musicians. Sorry, my mm -hmm. phone is ringing. I got to figure out how to quiet that one out. Um, and um, so it was um, Rex Fowler and Neil Schulman, and they um, they were high school sort of buddies. They were a few years ahead, and they used to play in Central Park. And they were the original, you know, two guitar two voices. And Simon and Garfunkel, of course, were out then. So I was always a two voice, two guitar. Um, and, you know, right through college um, and even in medical school, you know, when I kept performing through them. And I always sort of thought of my songs with that, you know, that texture. Um, mm -hmm. I, it got a little bit more complex. It got too complex in the first album, which I didn't have as much production control over. And then the second and third, John Chase and I really did together. And um, it, we tried to 
simplify more and more as even as we went from number two or to number three. So we'd, we'd come in with the songs, we'd play them all together. Um, I'd have some pretty clear ideas about the way I wanted the instruments to layer. John was really extraordinary with regard to, you know, finding the right, the, the vocal mixes and the like. I got a lot of input from my vocal coach on how to sing the songs better, because that's something I've never studied or spent enough time on. Um, and then we built it up. And then there were things where clearly things didn't work. Like I had one, one of the tunes, um, um, Just Another Day, ended up with, you know, completely a wrong solo guitar approach. And then, you know, we did a number of discussions around it. And that resonator guitar that left more empty space than it left notes um, became just, to me, the, the underpinning of that song. And then, um, you know, um, Low Lying Sun, again, um, one, of the, one of the musicians on it came in with a really heavy distorted electric guitar riff over it. And we ended up migrating it to a nylon string lead and my electric underpinning rhythm. Mm -hmm. So those types of changes were sort of fascinating, but for the most part, it was a pretty clear mandate to just keep it simple, have the guitars layered in uh, and go from there. The cello, um, in, especially in Time and Place and also in Grass the Moon, was actually suggested by a friend outside who had listened to the tracks. And I just loved that suggestion. It made all the difference in the world. Mm. Yeah. Well, we'll get, we'll get to that one of those tracks in a moment because it attracted my attention for a reason that I'll uh, unveil to the listeners here in a moment, but uh, you know, that's, that's really cool. I think, you know, a lot of times, and I know this has been my experience in the studio is that, you know, you go in with, particular tunes in mind and then you kind of get working through them and it's wonderful that you can have a lot of different ideas oh maybe we should try it this way uh we should try it that way you know and then arriving at a particular way to do it and i think that um uh you know it's a great way to work and when you talk about a mandate to just kind of keep it simple so that was kind of your you know, you're top down, if you will. But um, it also sounds like there was still a lot of idea sharing, uh, not only with your co-producer, but the other musicians on the recording session. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I want to just call them all out because they are they're really extraordinary. I've been so lucky. I met Sal Pusco, who's the dominant guitarist in all, all of the work, because I had um, actually you know, started doing something new in life, I had a little bit of freedom, and I always wanted to be a really good jazz guitarist, and I, mm -hmm. you know, I have, I've studied jazz, I know jazz theory really well, I incorporate jazz chords, I cannot for the life of me improvise in jazz the way I can in, in, in rock and beyond, because I just wasn't raised in the vernacular, so I started studying with Sal, um, and he's a phenomenal jazz guitarist, he's a guitar professor, mm -hmm. Among many other things. So the process of studying with them, I didn't have time to practice. I was working too hard. I'd come to the sessions. He'd get annoyed with me. We were we were always very good friends or same vintage. And then finally, I just said, to them, I don't think I can actually practice enough sound to justify this. But here, here's some songs I've written. And then we just started going down that path together. Um, you know, Sal brings to me um, unbelievably beautiful guitar lines um, and. Although, because he's so technically extraordinary, sometimes he'll come up with a flurry of notes and you gotta say, hey, Sal, a little less feeling, please, you know, that type of thing. But, um, but just beautiful melodic lines. Um, Joe Santer, who's the bassist on all, all three of them, 
is also a, an extraordinary, extraordinary contributor. You know, all of these guys are funk and fusion players, jazz players. So if you listen to Just Another Day, as an example, um, you know, Joe, who plays a six-string bass, came up with an incredibly beautiful double-stop um, counterpoint to both the instrumentation and to the vocals. And mm -hmm. I never realized until album three just how you know brilliant Joe is as a as a bassist. And so, you know, mm -hmm. that type of um, that type of contribution. Um, you know, John Chase and Corinne Chase have you know incredible vocal harmonies. John's a very, very good and subtle percussionist. He comes up with flourishes at just the right time. Doug Johnson taught my kids jazz piano, but is also a professor at Berkeley and is just one of the finest you know, jazz pianists around, and I've known him, and he's been a friend for years, mm -hmm. uh, and comes in again with ideas. And John Paul, whom I only played with on the third album, and I think on three of the tunes, it's just, you know, I didn't know him. He was a friend of John Chase's, but we needed somebody who sort of would come in with a different approach to the acoustic guitar and different sounds. And again, he contributed enormously. So it is mm -hmm. very much a bottoms up, let's play together as a band and mm -hmm. make this happen. Though on the one hand, on the other hand, I will maintain that John and I, you know, really retained editorial control over don't make this too layered, which was the big mistake mm -hmm. in the first one, and I think to some degree a mistake in the second. Um, so it, it, it was both top down and bottoms up, and it was mm -hmm. the, the joy of playing with musicians that I just, I can't believe how privileged I am to have those guys be a part of this, and, and gals, I mean, Corinne as well. Well, I think something, Jonathan, that, that non-musicians don't always understand when you talk to them about what we as musicians experience and maybe can't put into words very well, mm -hmm. is that when we get together to play, it's almost like having the most incredible feel-good bowl session. You know, somebody, it's just like sitting around talking about sports or anything else you know someone tosses out an idea and somebody else goes oh yeah da, 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 and somebody else contributes and 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 pretty soon you've got a really incredibly fun kind of conversation going on and i think music making in many ways is very much the same thing uh it might be that we're going to take say the music of a particular composer i'm, I'm gonna use my put my classical hat on for just a second and, um, and we kind of share and understand what we're, we're after, but everybody's contributing. Everybody's having something to say within the context of that, uh, of that particular language. And um, uh, I, you know, I find my non-musician associates say they don't quite understand. <laughs> and I, you know, and, and I, I know other music people, who, I, I bring this up because that to me sounds like exactly what you're describing. Is yep. it, you know? No, go ahead, Craig. I'm sorry, you mean to interrupt. No, no, that's quite all right. I, I, no, I think, I think it's a lot of what you you're describing in terms of the collaboration and that bottom-up approach to uh, what you created for the recording. Yeah, it, it's so much fun, and I think you know, it's it, it's interesting. I think also that you put it in the classical context, and there's there's a lesson, and yeah, I know that a lot of artists and a lot of people are frustrated with the migration of the music industry to the you know, to the web and the streaming world, you know, it has its advantages and disadvantages. The huge advantage it gives you is that it allows people in a, in a way to be heard from their living room. Um, you know, there, there's, there's something to that. And I have a friend who's also a musicologist, she's a PhD who primarily studied um, 
the um, early music era. She's a flutist. She's an early music music early early era musicologist mm -hmm. and um, read around Baroque and even before. And her thesis, I remember because I she just shared it with me, was was very much around the issue that music making went from being the means of self entertainment long before we had anything electronic or even you know auditorium based that this is how we entertained each other and people would develop skills and talents and we communicate by coming together. Um, and, you know, that that act of music making is so much a part of the human fabric. And, you know, you can fast forward. I remember being, um, at, at, you know, at a James Taylor concert and I think it was, it was, it was in Tanglewood maybe, and his brother Liv um, had come on stage. And I, I actually, Liv would never remember, but Livingston would never remember, but I remember. I met Livingston when I was walking home on the beach on Martha's Vineyard with a gigantic striped bass that I caught and Livingston stopped me and started talking about him. It was the thrill of my life because he introduced himself as Livingston Taylor. Um, in any case, you know, he got up on stage with his brother and he was just grinning from ear to ear. And it was, you know, the typical great James Taylor band making unbelievable music. Mm -hmm. And Liv grabbed the microphone and said, I cannot tell you how much fun it is to make music with James Taylor. And it was like, he was oblivious to the fact that he was, you know, playing to 20,000 people. He was yeah. just making music. And I think, you know, for me, and especially having the luxury of doing this as a passion, um, being able to get together with musicians and to play and to exchange sounds. And even if some of it's lousy and some of it turns out good, what a, what a thrill. What a luxury. Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's something that, uh, you know, I mean, it's what I thrive on. We, you do too. I mean, we yeah. understand that because, uh, you know, we're, we're addicted to music, you might say. Yeah. Well, let's uh, talk about a couple of songs specifically on the album. Um, one that caught my ear only because I was already, you know, familiar with it is the traditional folk song, The Water is Wide. Uh, and you, you that you have on the album. So, what is the significance of this song to you? I have always, always loved it, and I will admit, um, because you were kind enough to just, you know, give me a heads up that we were going to talk about it, and you invoked Pete Seeger and you invoked invoked James Taylor. Mm -hmm. I had never heard either of their versions. I, I will admit okay. that on this podcast. So last night, in fact, I listened to the Pete Seeger version the first time ever. It's very, it's cathedral-like. I mean, it's it's really, um, it's it's religious in its orientation. And then I listened to James Taylor's version. Uh, it was a live version, and of course, you know, just exquisite voice and simple instrumentation, and a, and a very emotional style of singing. But I learned this song from Carla Baroff, um, who I just love. Uh, I, I just, and I I think I jokingly said in another interview. Um, there's a novelist named Carl Hyacin. He's just sort of a hoot. He's a novelist based in Miami. And he writes about all kinds of Miami crime. And he's very, very funny. And one of his novels, the protagonist has actually fallen in love with a woman 20 years or 25 years his junior. And I love the book because at that moment, the protagonist said about this woman that he fell in love with, she seemed perfect in every way, except that she had no idea who Carla Bonoff was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, so Carla Bona um, was where I learned the song. Again, she did it very slowly. She did it um, on, the, on the recording version, not the live version. She had some sort of organ or calliope or whatever the instrument was in the background. And it was very traditional and very slow and a little bit sad, I thought. And I thought all of the versions that both the two I listened to last night for the first time in Carla Bona's were always a bit 
sad to me is just one of the most beautiful love songs I've ever heard. Um, mm-hmm. And I and I love the simplicity of it. I love the sort of Scottish roots of it. The language is somewhat formal, but it's still very you know it's very it, the, the, it's very accessible language in terms of the way the lyrics run. And I, years ago, having learned uh, the song from Carla Bonas album, I don't remember which, which of her albums it was on, um, put it into an open D format. Um, it allowed for you know, some, some very solo finger style type of embellishments. And then when we did it together, we kept it as simple as could possibly be. I always wanted an acapella version, a verse in the middle of it, which we put in. And then the inspiration of that on, on our album, um, the last verse is, and it surprised me because John and Corinne did this without me in the studio. Um, I got back the, I got back the um, the track, and on that track, the last verse after the acapella verse was this incredibly full multi-part harmony that just knocked my socks off, and I loved it. And it was also like John figured out what this song meant to me. This song is not a sad song about losing love. This song is an absolute celebration of the journey of life and, and, and love is an extraordinary experience that we should all have. And we try to put that, so it's more up-tempo, it's got fullness, it's got the counter, you know, the juxtaposition of Sal's lead guitar, which is always melodic and my finger style. And then those just soaring harmonies that John and Corinne came up with. And I, I was just really thrilled with the way it came out. Um, mm-hmm. The short answer, again, since I'm incapable of short answers, if it's obvious anyone <laughs> listening to this thing, um, is that I learned it from Carla Bonoff, and I really wasn't even aware of other versions of it. No. Well, it's still, it, it's very interesting. And you don't have to worry about short answers. I'm a, I'm a former college professor, which means if you ask me what time it is, I'll give you the history of the clock. So... Don't don't worry about that. I'm fascinated by what you're having to tell me. And uh, it's interesting that uh, what you have just enlightened me about this, uh, this particular song, because I'd never thought of it this way before. And of course, that's the beauty of art. Uh, You know, there can be several interpretations. I mean, I will tell you in the past, I've, I've, I've interviewed some singer songwriters and I'll, I'll want to talk about one of their specific songs and I'll say, well, to me, it sounds like what you're trying to get across is la di da da And they'll come back and say, no, it's just the opposite. <laughs> and I'll say, well, that's okay because that's the way I heard it. And now you've interpreted what your initial intent was. I can go back with a, with a different set of ears and let's do it a different way. And that's one of the beautiful things I think uh, about music is, the most plastic of the art forms is that it is open to interpretation and, and change. And, and to, you know, to go back to your first question to me on this whole thing, you know, we, we have the, the person performing or writing has the right to conceive of something in one way, but you don't have dibs on it. And however anyone wants to react to it is what you're trying to do. And there should be zero limitation. Um, I, I can, I can give you a, a medical, um, analogy to this. I was once going into the operating room and a cardiologist came up and said, you know, be careful because the echocardiogram of this heart shows that the atrium is very big. And we went in, you know, the atrium was totally normal. And we came back out, we said the cardiologist said the atrium was normal. And he he said, no, it couldn't be. The ultrasound showed it was big. And we said, nope, we were holding it in our hand. It was normal, but there were just two absolutely distinctive 
we just can't yeah. get to an agreement on this. So I think whatever it is that, you know, whatever it is that the listener hears mm -hmm. is what's real. And if we sure. intend something else, our tough luck if it doesn't come across. You know? Well, you know, in teaching music appreciation, you know, we all have, you know, we, we sometimes have to practice a little psychohistory because some, you know, the big question that a student will always ask when I play a piece of music for, for them is, well, what does it mean? Especially, you know, if it's just strictly instrumental and no, no uh, lyrics or, mm -hmm. or poetry associated with it. And of course, we don't, we can't really know what was on Beethoven's mind when he wrote you name it, his Pathetique Sonata or his Eroicus. Well, we kind of know about Eroicus Symphony. He was thinking about Napoleon. But but anyway, we only know this because we go back and we study letters and, and notes and things that composers wrote because we don't have any recordings of, of the original works. Yeah. So what I finally relegated myself to is when a student would ask me that question, I would say to them, okay, in your imagination, when you hear this music, what movie do you see in your head? Mm -hmm. And I, or I would ask, okay, like we just get through listening to a Chopin prelude, and I'll say, okay, what kind of day was Chopin having when he wrote this? Was he happy? Was he sad? Was he upset because he, you know, broke up with his girlfriend? You know, whatever. And uh, because your uh, music can elicit so many different feelings and have so many different interpretations, and they're all valid. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think in, in, in many cases, um, I, your song time and place, I really caught my ear, uh, because of that addition of the cello, you mentioned that a little bit earlier, yeah. and the whole overall sound of the song, and maybe it was the, the addition of the cello, I'm not sure, but the whole overall sound of the song reminded me a lot of one of my other all time favorite singer songwriters, Harry Chapin. And because he used cello in a lot of his uh, songs, um, was the you, you mentioned? I can't remember now. You mentioned earlier who that someone else had suggested using the cello, and it, it wasn't just, just a friend who had heard an early track. Yep. Okay, it was neither you nor John Chase. It right. was this this other friend. Okay, yep. so you weren't necessarily trying to channel Harry Chapin. It was just something that someone suggested. You tried it and you liked it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in fairness, um, and, and it wasn't really specific suggestion of that song, it's just my you know, friend heard the song early in its sort of incarnation and said, boy, it was so beautiful, it was jello. Um, but the, you know, there are a couple of times, Harry Chapin was not somebody I listened to a lot, but I had an enormous respect for him. He was, of course, one of those, um, one of those influencers from that era, um, and certainly an era in which I was musically most formed. Um, and so, Subliminally there, yeah, probably very likely. Um, Harry Chapin had another interesting role in my life, I mean, again, an aside. So when I, was, um, when I was in my surgical training, one of the things that my residency used to do was actually go spend three months in service at a hospital in Haiti that was very, very poor and really in need of um, significant help. And we were you know, good American surgical residents and we would come down and we would help the, the people. Um, that were served by this was the Albert Schweitzer Hospital. I don't think it exists anymore, sadly. And one of my colleagues there who was a couple of years older than me. The most momentous event for him was that he was actually down at that hospital and Harry Chapin was there actually serving at the hospital also. And he would sit around in the evening with the surgical residents playing the guitar with them. And so oh. I always had that. That is the Harry Chapin story that's 
sticks in my mind more than anything mm -hmm. more than, than his songs. The other thing I would invoke is that, you know, a couple of times in James Taylor's live concerts, um, he's actually had a solo cellist just come on with him on stage. Mm -hmm. And that is certainly something that I was incredibly aware of. So when the suggestion came through, especially because I used winds on the first album, um, I, there was a lot of just, you know, guitar and guitar only as the melodic underpinning. The idea of having a cello just struck me as just a great idea. And then we found for that song, Catherine Fence, who's a, again, another Berkeley faculty member, who just, I thought, did an extraordinary job. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. Well, I know, you know, Harry Chapin did have a, a charitable organization that his daughter uh, now runs. I don't remember the name of it now, World Hunger Now or something like that. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, I, I remember years ago reading about his charitable work in he Haiti. He was pretty and, dedicated, apparently, and that was, uh, it was a thrill for everybody who met him. I know that. I wasn't there. But. Yeah, well, but even hearing about it vicariously is is pretty thrilling, you know. I, I, yeah, uh, I'm curious now to get specifically back to you. Please tell my audience about who or what is your muse. Who or what inspires you to write a new song? It's um, it isn't necessarily a specific thing, um, and. You know, I can I can go through that. Um, I can go through the, the most recent album, and you know, there there were a couple of things that were very clearly inspired by an event, and and those I those I can name. Uh, a lot of the ways in which I write, um, and um, I wish I knew is an example of that. I think it's the fourth tune on the album. That was me. I had just bought a new electric guitar, and I have no idea why I bought an electric guitar because I'm not an electric guitarist. But it's the <laughs> second second one I own. And it was a beautiful um, PRS 30th anniversary, Paul Reed Smith 30th anniversary special guitar. I loved it. It had sort of Stratocaster sensibilities and I was fooling around on it and I was doing The Wind Cried Mary, which is somewhat my favorite tunes of all times. And I was fooling around with sort of those open acoustic chords that Hendrix always somehow managed to make on a Stratocaster sound mind boggling. And the song just started to progress based on a riff and then you know this, the words sort of matched the song, um, and there was nothing inspired about that per se. It wasn't that I sat down because an event happened. And then there's a lot of that also. Um, there's, you know, they're sitting down and trying to write a fun American songbook tune. So I have a new one coming out, uh, or that I just finished for what I hope will be the next collection called, you know, The Best of Times. There's no fear on this album. The title track is actually a swing shuffle tune that just sort of came together because I was fooling around with meter and I was fooling around with chords and then the words started to fit it. But, but there's some that are really you know, specific and, and, and those are where the inspirations become real. And so time and place was, was um, I was on a remote island um, where I go every year. I was fooling around on the guitar briefly and one line came to me, which was the first time today that I thought of you. Um, as I said, I lost my sister and that had been just a few years before. I was thinking about separation. I was thinking about the fact that, you know, a couple of different things, friends that you connect with after 30 years, where it's as though you just saw them yesterday, you can pick up and how time and place can influence your circumstance. And I remember when, you know, my sister got ill, you know, you, you flipped a switch from feeling absolutely not worried to, oh my God, what's just happened to me? So, you know, you can have that immediacy of time and place, but you also have the continuity of always knowing 
that um, those connections, whether they can still be realized because you're both still here or because you've been separated by something catastrophic, those connections really never fade away. That was a, a very specific inspiration and then took the song over. Um, just another day, I, had a, I have a very, very dear friend who lost a child, um, it was an adult child, but it was a child, and of course there's absolutely nothing worse. And I had lived through the, the vagaries of treatment, remission, treatment, remission, abject fear, loss, and you know, excitement at feeling well. Um, and the song was written when the, the young man was actually still well, and sadly, you know, has since been lost to all of us. But that song was 100% about that event. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I think had it been my event, I never would have written them. I think it would have been just, you know, horrible and close and terrible. And I actually, my, the, the father in this case is a very, very dear, dear and trusted friend. And I waited two or three years to tell him that that's what this was because, you know, mm -hmm. I just didn't want to burden him with that knowledge when he was still in the very, very acute phase. You never get over that. And I've had other sure. friends, you know, who, who face similar tragedies. And then, um, you know, Lohan's son, again, another friend said to me that, oh, wow, look at the sun today. I think Lohan's son in the fall is so beautiful. I live in a place where, part of the time, where in the fall, there are islands offshore, they're six miles offshore. And in the Lohan's son in the fall, you see those islands stretched out as though they're right in front of you. I don't know what it is about the optics, but it's extraordinary. Um, and I think I was just hitting birthdays with my sixes and my having thickness. And um, and I was thinking, you know, we're totally youth-oriented, but there's something really beautiful about a low line song. And that song is very specifically inspired by the fact that, frankly, the older I get, the stronger I feel, the more I feel like I know life, and, and that gives you strength. And now I can't run a 10K the way I used to, to play songs the way I used to, but you know, there's a different strength in, 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 you know, in getting old well or getting older well. And that song was specifically inspired by that. So <laughs> you know, it, it varies widely, Craig, and again, yapping and incredibly here, but those are you know, different answers. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's great what you talked about. Uh, I uh, One of the things that I do in uh, retirement is I conduct a band uh, through the uh, New Horizons International Music Association, uh, which uh, came out of the Eastman School of Music uh, probably 25, maybe 30 years ago. And uh, most all the people in my band are in their 70s and 80s. I'm 66 and they think I'm a kid. But um, the point I, today we got talking about, I don't know how it came up in between numbers that we're talking about various aches and pains and various distresses and medical issues that everybody at that age has. And I, I said, well, you know, you can't stop aging, but you don't have to get old. The uh, secret to life is enjoying the ride. James right. Right. Yeah. And I, of course, and I always added and, and got a good laugh. And I said, yes, I always like to think that I'm immature for my age. Yeah. Uh, you know, so. Um, well, you, you know, you've already talked a good deal about your creative process. And it sounds like it's rather eclectic uh, that you don't necessarily have a particular uh, way. But, you know, when you get an idea for a song, what comes to your mind first, the lyric or a melody or a rhythm or set of chords or, or is there, you know, exactly what comes to mind first? It, it's always best 
if, if it's simultaneous, if it's lyric, lyrics and chords okay. and melody. Um, I have way more voice memos than I have songs, as, as okay. you can imagine. Um, and I try to jot down things, you know, a couple of things in terms of how that all evolves. The more I play, the more ideas I have. Also, interestingly, the more I read, the better ideas I have. When I'm in periods of work where I just don't have time or I, you know, watch some stupid movie that I've seen a hundred times before, just for brain candy at the end of the day, I, mm -hmm. I'd say my creative output goes out, goes down pretty meaningfully. When I'm reading good turns of phrases, and it doesn't matter whether it's a high-end book or nonfiction or just something amusing, you know, people who can turn words, the phrases stick and they speak to you. And, you know, one of, one of the songs on this album, um, you know, was inspired, Grass the Moon was inspired by a speech I heard. And that, you know, that, so I took that phrase and turned it into a song. So I will get, I'll get chord progression ideas, I'll get lyrical ideas, I'll record them. Um, usually the things that come in isolation don't come to really good fruition. Um, mm -hmm. There's, you know, there's some deviations from that as a standard, but for the most part, that's what I find. When I can sit down and, you know, have a, a chord progression, inspire a lyric because it fits, or I'm reacting to something and I come up with a lyric and I can find a chord that fits it. And I will do a two minute voice memo based on that, including some scatting because the lyrics don't necessarily flow immediately. Those are the ones that turn into really successful songs. Um, okay. Time and Place literally took me 15 minutes to write. I sat wow. down with that, with that, you know, ESUS 9, um, and the line, the first time that I had thought of you, the world away, that I'm right next to you, um, which is in the last verse, because I retro-engineered everything to that last verse, that song wrote 15 minutes and two days later it was finished. Wow. And I have another, another tune that I just finished, um, I'm jokingly calling the next album Love Songs from the Apocalypse, because they were all written during the pandemic, but... Um, you know, it's a, it's a song that I wrote, really, really loved, couldn't figure out the bridge to it. And I've had a bridge lying around literally for decades that I can never find a home for. And mm -hmm. I modified the lyrics to make them more mature and more reflective of what the song is about. But the melody fit beautifully and those two things came together. So the song took a, a day initially to write and then there was another bridge that I wrote, God knows how many years ago. and brought it together. So mm -hmm. it is an eclectic process. I'd love to be more disciplined, but the more I play, the more I read, the more I write, and if it mm -hmm. comes together, the better it is. Yeah, I, another singer-songwriter I, I interviewed recently, she said, yeah, it just kind of happens organically. I mean, it's all kind of at once. It does. Yeah. There isn't a process per se. I am going to make one recommendation. If you love turns of phrase and different quotes and different words and things like that, check out a uh, newsletter that, or a website by Dr. Marty Groth, M-A-R-D-E-G-R-O-T-H-E. I'm on his, I, every week I get an email and he's got a new um, collection coming out. It's going to be in October called Best Opening Lines, where he's collected mm -hmm. opening lines from novels and nonfiction and kinds of things. And then he amongst his uh, readers is a contest for what they feel like are the, the best opening lines, you know. And if it was a dark and stormy night wins, I'll quit reading him. But I think that uh, you might find if you find that 
reading inspires your thinking, I would suggest, you know, you read the collections that he comes up with because it's, or his books is, are really good as well. That's great. That's a great suggestion. Absolutely. Well, well, Jonathan, you know, you really are batting a thousand today because in your discussions, you've already knocked out two other questions I was going to ask you about keeping a sketchbook and most, you know, your voice memos and that you're currently writing. And uh, so now that No Fear is out, you are planning your next album, your songs from the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And do you have a timeline for that? So I'm about, um, I have five brand new tunes completed. There are a couple of tunes that I did um, that I'd like to do because I, I did them on the first album. Um, one of them was new, one of them was very old. Um, then I'd like, to, I'd like to recast given sort of where I've gone to with regard to production and instrumentation. And I've got about five or six others that are in various stages. Um, you know, I have a, you know, just things that I've done that are not quite right. And I've had a very, very busy time of it lately. So I have not had the chance. I tend to do most of this late at night when you know, everyone's sleeping, mm -hmm. but I, ha I haven't had the chance to take a lot of those ideas of the remaining incomplete songs and bring them to fruition. I've actually got sort of a thematic um, unification of the, of the songs to come and the five that are new were really reflective of what was going on in our society for the last 18 months and just the, you know, the isolation and the, the sadness. Um, but I don't want to write tunes that are depressing that bring you down. I want to write tunes that sort of celebrate our resilience and that's very much what they're about as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm still writing hopefully something new to follow in the relatively near term and um, you know, such a delight to do it. I just bought a new guitar, a new acoustic that um, is also going to change my style. I'll, I'll, I'll say it. It's a, a 10 string. I have 12 strings. I have six strings. I've never heard of a 10 string before. Uh, it's a Ryan, which is a boutique California guitar maker. It's exquisite. But what it is, is that the lower four strings are double stopped the way a 12 string would be. Oh. And, the, and the higher two strings are single. And what it allows you to do is have sort of an orchestral feel to the way your chords come out, even if you're playing totally solo, but it allows you to do very clean embellishments of the, uh, uh, on the treble strings. So mm -hmm. it's also pretty inspiring and it's already lent itself to some new ideas. So wow. hopefully, uh, Craig, um, hopefully this will all progress along with everything else I do. And I love doing it and I'm incredibly appreciative of the chance to talk about it. I really thank oh, you for that opportunity. You know, we'll look forward to doing a follow-up interview sometime because uh, i'll be curious to to kind of see where you where you go with that new instrument and uh looking forward of course to the recordings that will result uh jonathan i only have two more questions to ask you um the first one is what uh have been some of the most memorable experiences of your musical career um so you know i and first of all i think that the the edit I would make is that I haven't I haven't had a musical career so much as I've had just a musical journey, and okay. because um, because I, I don't want to misrepresent myself to be obviously I take this extremely seriously and I care about it as much as I care about anything I do professionally. But I've not been a working musician as the way in which I make a living, and it's been a luxury for me. Um, and you know it's been incredibly nice to be received despite that fact. Um, it's never that I haven't taken it seriously, but but that's true. I mean, 
you know, in the last few years, I actually, um, for the first time in decades, played a gig in Maine with um, the Berkeley crowd. Um, and um, the first time I did that venue, it was, a, it was a theater. It was really, it was crowded. I mean, it was it seated 100. It had about 100 people there, a number of friends and family, but a lot of people that just came to the show. It was incredibly fun to perform again. It was, you know, I... I have a professional life where I speak in public a lot, and you know, I'm in front of, I'm in the boardroom, I'm on boards, et cetera, et cetera. And I never had an issue. It's probably it's all too clear, you know, talking spontaneously. Mm -hmm. um, but performing is a whole different world, and you know, engaging people. I had seen Tom Rush the year before um, at the uh, Narrows um, Music Center in, in Fall River, and I talked to him afterwards. He's you know, always also a huge hero of mine. And one of the things he said personally, and also in a blog that he wrote about it is that when you get up on stage, make sure that people know that you care about what you're talking about, that you're seeing mm -hmm. yourself with them. And so I was anecdotal at this set. Um, we, we played for about an hour and a half, two hours. Um, it was all my tunes. We didn't do any covers. And I was able to um, talk about um, what each of the songs was about, give an introduction. I had an enormously fun time, just an mm -hmm. fun time. Um, you know, the other thing I would say is producing, especially this last album where John Chase and I worked so closely and I really felt in control was, was an enormous highlight um, musically. But then I've also, you know, I, I can't help but say when you see somebody that's extraordinary and it can be in a giant venue um, or it can be in a small venue, but where you just see them at the top of their game. I saw Jonathan Edwards, who's a, you know, dates back ages as a folk musician. I saw him at the Vineyard Whaling Church 25 years ago. I thought he did a great show. Actually, Richie Havens was on the next night. Oh. He did the show. Just amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and that stayed with me. And then about four years ago, Jonathan came to my, um, my hometown and gave a, a concert in a vineyard there, an open-air concert. And his, his keyboardist and harmonist didn't show up. So he carried it on his own and he was clearly disaffected. His head wasn't in it. And I really thought, you know what? He was phoning it in. It's, you know, it's years later, he was here, he was phoning it in. And it turns out, and then saw him a year later again uh, at a similar venue. And you realize that everybody's entitled to a bad night. And he just knocked my socks off completely. He was brilliant and passionate and he was political. And he still got one of the clearest voices you can possibly hear. Mm -hmm. He's a phenomenal guitarist and harmonica player. Things like that really stick with me. Um, th those are the things that, to me, I care about. And again, it can be a tiny venue with somebody you know, a tiny venue with somebody you don't know, or something that is um, biblical in proportion, but it's the smaller ones that I really love. But yeah. those are some memories of life. You know, it, it, your your expression of what you're telling me is is so similar to what everyone else says and and sometimes you know they tell uh, people i've interviewed have told me it's not the big things you remember necessarily it's the little things yeah. you know and uh, you know like it's not how much money you made or or how you know whatever but it's those those little kinds of relationships that you have for just a moment maybe with an audience member or with someone else you're playing with or the fact that uh, like in your case you were playing your music how how much more uh stripped naked can you be 
in, right. than, than performing your artwork in front of an audience and, uh, and it, you know, and then having to deal with their reaction to it. And yeah. it's, it's got to feel, you know, of course, that's part of the thrill is when we get that feeling as musicians that we're working without a net. You know, we're on that high trapeze and we don't have a net. And uh, uh, there's a there's a, really a rush from that. I, I think that's great. Well, my last question for you, Jonathan, is, is there anything else you would like to add or tell my audience that I haven't asked you yet? I think I think the only thing that I'd love to say, Craig, is that, um, you know, it's it's been a passion of mine my whole life to write music. Um, hope, hopefully it's getting better. I love the I love the mature sensibilities that the years can bring. Um, but I also just have such extraordinary respect for the working musicians that are out there every single day, putting it on the line, producing, taking chances, some of them succeeding wildly, wildly, some of them really struggling hard. And I never want to put myself into some sort of delusional category of, uh, of being anything other than a person who loves to write music, who loves to share it. And if I'm lucky enough to have people enjoy it, I feel incredibly privileged and grateful for that. And if I can just leave people with that impression rather than a self-promotion or self-delusional um, sense of, uh, of what I am, then that, that'll mean the world to me to be able to say to this audience. Wow, that's great. That's great. Jonathan, thank you for taking time to talk with me today. And I want to wish you all the best with what I'm sure is going to be a, a very continued successful musical future. Thanks so much, Fred. Really a pleasure to meet and to talk. Same here. My discovery composer of the week is John Abraham Fisher, born in London in 1744, died in Ireland in 1806. Fisher was an English violinist and composer. He studied violin with Thomas Pinto and made his solo debut at the King's Theatre on January 25, 1765, at a benefit concert for the Musicians Fund. He appeared there again as a soloist on January 23, 1767. Opportunities for composition led Fisher to the Theatre Royal, Covent Garden, where his contributions to the score of Love in the City were heard on February 21, 1767. He soon became attached to this theater where he served as orchestra leader from about 1768 to 1778. During the summer months, Fisher led the Vox Hall Orchestra and composed instrumental and vocal works for presentation there. Fisher also took part in the musical activities of the Masonic Order. He was commissioned to compose an anthem and an ode for the dedication of the new Freemasons Hall in London in 1776. In 1772, Fisher married Elizabeth Powell, widow of William Powell, a former theater manager. As a result, Fisher gained control of a 16th share of the Covent Garden Theatre property. In addition to composing for stage productions, he took part in the theatre's administration. 
of his contributions to Covent Garden Productions, those which enjoyed the greatest success were the pantomime, pantomime Harlequin Jubilee, the incidental music to the play Zobiad, the all-sung mosques, the Druids, and the Sirens, and his overture for Kane O'Hara's burlesque, The Golden Pippin. Fisher's confidence, or confident and effective writing elicited the admiration of critics. The years between 1769 and 1778 must have been busy for Fisher, who composed music for numerous stage productions, of which only a few were collaborative efforts. In July of 1777, Fisher graduated with a Bachelor and Doctor of Music degrees from Oxford. His graduating exercise was the oratorio Providence. This was performed at Oxford on July 2nd, with Fisher himself leading the orchestra with subsequent performances in London. After 1778, Fisher concentrated upon his performing career, and following the death of his wife on May 7, 1780, he undertook concert tours in France, Germany, and Russia. Thereafter, Fisher settled in Dublin, where he supported himself by teaching and performing occasional concerts at the Rotunda. As a performer, Fisher played with great temperament and technical facility. The virtuoso element is displayed in his three long and difficult violin concertos, the second of which features frequent wide leaps, double stopping, arpeggiation, and a variety of virtuoso bowing techniques. The elements of sonata form are particularly well handled in Fisher's seven symphonies, and the orchestration is varied by the introduction of solo passages for wind instruments and the use of high textures without a bass line. Mannheim techniques, such as indications for dynamic contrast, including the crescendo, are in evidence. His Music for the Opening of Macbeth of 1780 seemingly the last music he composed before undertaking his continental concert tours, was only rediscovered in 1982. The score appears to be the first musical setting of the two witches' scenes in the first act of Macbeth to make use of an accurate version of Shakespeare's text. The popularity of Fisher's works later in the century, including his well-loved overture to the Sirens, is demonstrated in the surviving repertory lists for Vauxhall in 1790 and 1791. The All Music Guide lists only two albums with Fisher's music. One is a compilation of his complete symphonies, and another is inclusion of his overture to the sirens. In my show notes is a link to a YouTube recording of the first movement, Allegro, of Fisher's Overture to the Sirens, performed by Capella Savaria under the baton of Mary Terry Smith. That wraps 
episode number 54. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances, are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Coming up next week, I will be interviewing Libertyville, Illinois-based veteran singer-songwriter Ike Riley. Other upcoming interviews include San Francisco, California-based singer-songwriter Cheska, indie R&B duo Dwight and Nicole, and Dwayne Betts of the Allman Betts Band. So don't touch that dial and stay tuned. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.